We're going to be reading today from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And there is an ESV translation in front of you if you don't have one. And feel free to take one as our gift to end today. Again, it's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object or worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we approach a difficult passage, Lord, that... that foreshadows unpleasant things that, that seem unpleasant, Lord, that we, we help us that we don't miss the main thrust of this passage, Lord, that you are victorious and that you are the one that is in, in charge. You're the one that's in control. You are the one at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess your lordship. And this to the glory of, of God. And, and so, Lord, we, we pray that as we dig into this passage, that that would be the overriding truth that we would cling to, that our God reigns, our God wins, our God is victorious, our God will have the last word. We thank you for that, Lord. You are amazing. Lord, help me, assist me as I preach this word, Lord. Help me to be clear as, as your word uh, is, allows me to be. I pray that you would just uh, help me to not um, try to to dig into to mysteries that are too deep or too high, but that I would I would cling to your word and 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 try to to explain what it says. And and Lord, I need your assistance to do that. Thank you for that. Thank you for all these people that are gathered here together in your name. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. So we're in chapter 2 now, 2 Thessalonians, and Paul is going to dive into this chapter. And what he's going to do here is he's, he's going to clear up remaining questions about Christ's return. We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, for those of you who are keeping score, there are eight chapters that compose First and Second Thessalonians. We're in the second chapter, so the seventh chapter of, of all the books. And in this, in this instance, we're now at the sixth time that Paul has referenced the coming of the Lord. So this, is, this becomes the central theme of these books. This is what he wants us to know. He starts out like this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, when he starts like that, you'll recall he's referring to things that he already discussed and already explained to the church in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. 
But in both letters, it's important to remember that he's building on doctrines that he had already shared with them during his time in Thessalonica. In fact, he points to that in verse 5. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He talks in this passage that we read today about tremendous mysteries. He talks about great mysteries, but he does not talk about them in great detail. Why would he have such an important subject and not talk to his readers in in more detail and give specifics? It's because he's already spoken exhaustively. The text indicates this, both in in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that he's already spoken exhaustively of these things while he was there in Thessalonica. So for them in this letter, only a reminder is necessary. He's saying, hey guys, remember we talked about this. Now this might to you, it certainly does to me, it might seem very, very frustrating. Don't you wish that Paul had left us with a much more detailed blueprint of the end? Anybody with me on that? I definitely do. We wish that we had the details that, that the ones that were present in Thessalonica when he spoke to them received. But, but I want you to understand, that's not, that's not a, a mistake. It's not an accident. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit has put the entire church on a need-to-know basis. And there's some freedom in that. Amen? Yeah, there really is. There's freedom in just being on a need-to-know basis. It's human nature to want to dig and discover new mysteries instead of just being satisfied with what God has given us to know. And I'm telling you, believe it or not, all we need to know is laid out for us right here in the Scripture. Everything we need to know. Paul presents the main point that we should know. He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See, in Thessalonica, this anxiety persisted. It was just, everybody was on edge. The nerves were rattled. Paul says that they were shaken in mind. They were alarmed. And it's because Paul's teaching that he had given them in the letter and in his time there has been, his his teaching about the return of Christ has been distorted. It's It's been taken and twisted somehow. False teaching had come from people who were claiming spiritual authority or claiming to be operating in some spiritual gift. He says a spirit or a spoken word. The implication of a spoken word is that it was a spoken word of teaching or prophecy. And so he he says, don't be shaken by that. And he also mentions a letter seeming to be from us. Now think about what he's implying there. Had someone actually forged an epistle with false information and sent it in Paul's name to the church of Thessalonica. Is that what happened? Well, guess what? Most scholars believe that's exactly what happened. They got a letter, said this is from Paul, and you need to know the day of the Lord's already come. You've missed it, so here's what you do next. This this false teaching claimed, as I said, Christ had already come, and they somehow missed it. And so Paul reminds them to to set their minds at ease. This this passage with all the dark references in it is not to shake them. It's not to rattle them. It's not to to arouse some interest in some spooky thing that's going to happen. Listen to me. It's to give them confidence, assurance, peace. They have not missed the return of Jesus Christ. They haven't. And that's good news for them. And guess what? It's good news for you too. Paul reminds them of what he previously said. And he says, there's some things, guys, that must take place before the coming of the Lord. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless. That means these things have to happen first. Unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul points to these two signs to show that the end has come upon the world. He said, he said, guys, if you see these things, we're in a whole different situation. He says, but, 
but they haven't come yet. He, he mentions this rebellion coming and this appearance of a mysterious man of lawlessness. And then he says the rebellion comes first. He, he kind of puts it in that order. Now, as I said earlier, no matter what you've heard, no matter what you've been taught, no matter what I, from me or anyone else, you, this, this is still a mysterious text. It, it, it's not as clear as we might hope that it was. But that doesn't mean that we should just disregard and say, I can't figure that out, and it's going to move on. There's clues in this text that help us to understand what Paul might be saying. What does he mean when he says a rebellion is it will come first? First, the word rebellion is the Greek word of apostasia, or apostasia, yeah. And I hate Greek. Um, and it's, it, it, it's used. I, I wish they'd written it, the, the Bible originally in a different language or something. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, apostasia, and it's, it's used only twice in the New Testament. Once it's used as to forsake. And Paul says there's going to be a forsaking that comes. The second is that time is used is right here, and it means a rebellion. And other versions that you might have, if you have a King James or New King James, it might translate it as a falling away. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it might translate the word as apostasy. And, and apostasy means the act of abandoning or renouncing a previously held religious or political belief. So, so make sure you're staying on track here. Paul is saying that there's going to come this mass abandoning of religious belief or or political uh, you know ideologies whatever so this word carries with it the idea of a soldier uh, raise your hand if you have previous military service raise your hand hold up high so I can see it so you'll understand the horror of what he describes here it, this word apostasia it carries the idea of a soldier becoming derelict in his duty abandoning his post, defying orders, forsaking his mission. That's what Paul is portraying. He says, this is going to happen. Paul tells Timothy in his first, or second letter to him that a time like this is coming, when people, when people begin to, to forsake what they previously held. He says, but understand this. This is 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And then he explains what those will look like. He says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then he gives us this great advice, avoid such people. The coming apostasy, based on these words from, from, uh, Timothy, from Paul to Timothy, seem to indicate that, that this coming apostasy is related to spiritual unfaithfulness, not out there but right in here. That, that makes me a little un, uh, uneasy. It, it makes me a little unsettled to think about a day coming when all of those terrible things I just described being way more and more common in the church. And yet, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would say that we see traces and evidences of all of these types of sins occurring in churches all across the world right now. Paul also mentions, very mysteriously, a man of lawlessness. And all through church history, if that confuses you, if that causes you anxiety, listen, there are 2,000 years worth of people who have shared the feeling you're feeling right now. All throughout history, this uh, church history, rather, this reference has caused a ton of speculation and a whole lot of confusion on the part of believers. Many people see this figure as this man of lawlessness as synonymous with the Antichrist or the beast of Revelation. Although Paul does not obviously call him those things here, this man that he's describing clearly seems to be anti 
or opposed to Christ. Would you agree with that? And he seems to be a beast of a figure. And not in the good way, like younger people say that now. That dude's a beast. When, when, when you see the Antichrist, you will say that dude's a beast, but it won't be a compliment. By calling him the, make it particular, the man of lawlessness, it would appear that he's speaking of an individual and not just some ideal or characteristic of the culture in which he lives. And we're also told about his individuality that Jesus kills him. He doesn't kill the idea or the, or the ideology. He kills him. And it's though a specific person is envisioned. And, and this man... By Paul is defined by several characteristics. He's put forward as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, first, by opposing, make sure you catch this, by opposing and exalting himself against every so-called God or object of worship, Paul describes someone who is both, make sure you get this, both anti-Christian, in other words, the beliefs that we have embraced, and anti-religion. He opposes himself against every so-called God and object of worship. True or false, he just opposes it. And yet... In, in supreme irony, as he's opposed to all religion, he will present himself as the object of the world's worship, proclaiming himself to be God. Isn't that ironic? To many of the time, when, when people see you know, his, his assault on, on all belief systems, true and false, and when he sees the assault on all belief systems and all the, the traditional uh, foundational institutions seem to crumble before him, they might say this is an act of unity and peace because he's bringing all the world together as, as we're universally told or, or forced to cast away our divisive truth claims. And to join in this worldwide pseudo-harmonious worship of a brand new single entity. Now think about that. That casts a, a brand new light, puts a whole new spotlight on those seemingly harmless and very popular coexist bumper stickers and t-shirts, doesn't it? Kind of makes you think about that. See, what I want to tell you is that if we sacrifice, as the people of God, if we sacrifice all the things that make Christianity and belief in the gospel distinct, Paul seems to be saying here that we're conspiring with the spirit of Antichrist. That's what Paul is saying. Spurgeon, in Spurgeon style, said to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. Paul says that this man, this man of lawlessness, will take his seat in the temple of God. What is the temple? This is a hotly debated point of this passage. Some people believe that this prophecy has already been fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome uh, entered the temple and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem uh, and destroyed it, leveled it. That, that that was when he took his place in the, in the temple. A lot of people believe that. Um, and futurists, people like premillennial dispensationalists, it, it may not mean anything to you, and I'm not trying to explain that right now, but people who believe all, all of this stuff is going to happen in the future believe that it's referencing a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And, and this rebuilt temple is the centerpiece of all the future events that they believe the Bible predicts. But in no other place, what I want to point out to you, this, is, this I think is a key point, in no other place in his letters or even in the epistles do you find a, a New Testament writer making a reference to the old or rebuilt temple in, uh, in a present or, or past tense in, uh, in Jerusalem. On the contrary, what they always refer to when they refer to the temple, always, I looked it up, I promise you, you can test my math if you need to, but on the contrary, they, they always refer to the church and the individual members of it as the temple under the new covenant. Always. And so what does it mean when it says he takes his place in the temple of God? I believe that the temple is a reference to the church. That he will take his place 
right here among us. I don't like that, but that's what we're reading. The temple is a reference to the church, meaning that the Antichrist will rise from spiritual or even Christian-appearing circles, and he'll do so with the endorsement of people you'd think and you would hope would know better. Jesus, you think, no way, would never happen. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. Because Jesus, the highest authority, even predicted this would be a part of the end. Let me prove it. Matthew 24, Jesus is great. They call it the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end of time. And he says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Why, Jesus? For false Christ's... And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the very elect. Now, how is he going to influence and, 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 and possibly deceive the very elect if he's not right here in our gang? How's he going to do it? He's going to be right here. And so what I am encouraging you as the people of God, may we always be people who are not easily dazzled by mere miracles, especially if they are not rooted in the truths of the Bible. At some point, the mask will be taken off and this blasphemous little man will proclaim himself to be God as he demands universal worship. And this will seal his fate. Paul actually calls him the son of destruction. And that's important. This shows us his ultimate end. It shows us where he's heading. He, is a, he was born for destruction. Nothing that he does can or will succeed. He is bound for the pit. And believe it or not, as harsh as that sounds, that's good news. But this is also, this, this, this moniker, the son of destruction, is also a hint of his connection, again, to the church. You know why? The only other person in Scripture called the son of destruction was who? Anybody remember? It was Judas. Judas Iscariot was called the son of destruction in Scripture. And, and think about the connection there. Though Judas was in Jesus Christ's inner circle, what did he do? He betrayed the Lord. Right there from his inner circle. And in doing this, he became the archetype, I'm sorry, the archetype for the one who will come at the end and oppose God. Okay, so are you all still with me? Okay. Paul's point is not in making all this, that, and I want to emphasize this with a heavy fist. Paul's point is not that the mission of the church will ultimately fail that it's ultimately in jeopardy, or that God will somehow, by the rising of this fool, be, re- be relieved of his sovereign control for a season. Not going to happen. Quite the opposite is the case. Paul proves it. And you know, listen to these words, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So again, this verse, very confusing. Anybody feel like a prophecy expert yet? That's what I'm going for this morning. Very confusing. So what Paul is telling us is that something, what, he says, what, uh, the, what is restraining him, and someone who is restraining him, he uses both words in this passage, uh, it, it, but, but a what and a who is restraining the man of lawlessness's appearance. Now, historically, the church is, has assigned that to three different possibilities of what the restrainer of the man of lawlessness is. First, some say that it is the angel of Revelation chapter 20. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, I've got it up here for us, so you don't have to take time to look it up. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, these words are written. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He's restrained. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I'm millennialist, which I'm part of that camp, believe that the thousand years here refers to the days we're living in now, the apostolic uh, period, the, the period of the church. 
and, and that as the kingdom advances throughout the whole earth, that Satan is bound. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying, obviously, if you look around the world, that Satan is powerless. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that according to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, where he says that, the, that, uh, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he's saying that the devil at this period cannot stop the effectiveness of the gospel wherever it's preached. And that ought to give you incredible courage to preach the gospel. Because there's nothing that can stop. There is not a devil in hell or Satan himself that is strong enough to stop the overcoming power of Christ's gospel preached in truth. Not one. So there's this part in there. It talks about a time of his release. It's a brief period at the end where he seems to be free to deceive the nations once more during the time of the man of lawlessness is what I'm suggesting. But in actuality, it's not like he's just free and God's kind of out of control there. Like I said, what is actually happening, as we'll see in just a minute, is that God is actually setting him up to be judged. That his release is just to give him enough rope to hang himself, so to speak. Others have guessed, now, so we have the angel of, of Revelation, others have guessed that it's the present work of the Holy Spirit that's restraining him. After all, God is a sovereign God. He, what he allows is allowed, what he doesn't allow isn't allowed. And the angel of Revelation, chapter 20, and the Holy Spirit are two possibilities for ask, answering the question of who is restraining him. But let's talk about what is restraining him. And the chief possibility, as I mentioned, is that it is the preaching of the gospel that is restraining him. It may be that the combination of this coming in time apostasy and the state-sponsored oppression of the church results in the proclamation of the gospel being somehow curbed for a short time, and I mean a very short time at the very end, leaving the powers of darkness unrestrained. And seeing these things, if we look at all these things and the possibility of all these things, and we relegate it all to the future, that, that, that someday this guy's going to show up and set up a kingdom and all this terrible stuff's going to happen, if we relegate it only to the future, it may cause us to become apathetic and miss what is happening right now. And we go, ah, Antichrist could be here next year, could be here a thousand years, we don't even have to worry about it. But listen to carefully what Paul says. Listen to this. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Did you hear what I said? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And he said this 2,000 years ago. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Did you know, I want you to get this, that the word antichrist is only used four times in the entire Bible. Now, some of you know where it's at. But if I were to ask you to guess, I'm not going to make you expose if you don't know. But if I were to ask you where is it used, four times, most of you would probably primarily guess the book of Revelation. Did you know the word Antichrist is not used one time in the book of Revelation? It's not used one time in Matthew 24. It's not used one time in the book of Daniel. All of these great prophetic references. It is used in a, it's used in a, a, a couple of books, across two books, that most people don't even consider having anything to do with Bible prophecy. The word Antichrist. It's used by the Apostle John in his first and second epistles. And the context may surprise you. I'm going to read you the passage that contains the first two references. And I want you to hear the context of his use of the word Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, there it is, future. So now, present, many Antichrists have Come past. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Remember what I said a few minutes ago. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? 
but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Just to recap. John says the Antichrist is coming. You've heard he's coming. And John says that he is now present. And then he says that many Antichrists have come in the past. Listen to me carefully. There has always been, in the entire history of the church, there will always be types of Antichrist working among God's people. You do not have to wait to see the Antichrist. You do not have to wait. Guess what? He's here. He's here. John calls it the spirit of Antichrist. Now, if you're like, who is he? He's everywhere. The spirit of Antichrist has permeated the entire... We'll talk about this in a minute. But Paul Paul says... uh, I'm sorry, John says that the presence of many Antichrists means that the last hour has arrived. Now, by last hour, he obviously doesn't mean the last few days or weeks or maybe even years since he wrote this 2,000 years ago. He means the last hour, he means the last chapter, the last page of history has been turned with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We are in the last hour. This is it. There's no big thing left on the calendar. This is it. We are in the last hour. And, and he, he means that this is the period, the period that you are blessed to live in. It's the period where God is sewing up all of redemptive history. The most exciting time to be alive. People tell me all the time, I wish I could have seen the miracles in, in, in Egypt or when the, the, the children of Israel were coming out or all the great battles where God intervened. Listen, you would be trading the better for the lesser. You are in the best time in human history to, live, uh, uh, to be alive. The time after the cross when men and women can be redeemed by calling on Jesus Christ. This is the good times. John says, I want to point this out to you again. He said, they went out from us, meaning once again that the Antichrist of the present and the past seem to all have originated from within the church. An antichrist also is known by what he denies. This is antichrist, he says. He who denies the father and the son. Now, this does not simply mean to merely deny that they exist, but to deny everything that the scriptures reveals about them. John expands on this later by adding that everyone who denies Christ came from God and he that, uh, that denies that he came in the flesh. Those people are also categorized as antichrist. John's words... Tell us, if we're paying attention, that history has always had Antichrist, Pharaoh, Herod the Great, Nero, Domitian, the, the, the popes, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, Bin Laden, all of them bear marks of Antichrist. All of them do. But to know that isn't enough. He also shows us that, as I've said over and over, the Antichrist can be right among us because the spirit of Antichrist is a heretical denial of what the Bible says Jesus is. Brazenly assaulting his deity, his humanity, and his lordship. That's what the spirit of Antichrist is whenever it's denied. So the Antichrist... Today, 2009, is seen in the greedy purveyors of the prosperity message. It's seen in preachers and churches who excuse blatant sin in order to appear loving and accepting. It's seen in those who deny key doctrines of the virgin birth and the the resurrection, let alone false religions that deny Christ and His salvation altogether. We cannot lovingly just agree to disagree. These things are antichrist. That's what the Bible says. That's not, my, uh, that's not my assessment. The Bible says that the one who denies the Father, who denies the Son, this is antichrist. So the man of lawlessness surely may point to an end time figure. But antichrist will always be with us until then either on a grand, political, even state-sponsored scale, or as wolves in sheep's clothing spouting heresies to deceive the people of God. 
But Jesus, oh, get ready for this. Jesus will never cede control of his creation now or in the future. He will not do it. Paul says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Please understand that I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so when I read this passage this week about the Antichrist being revealed, all I could think of was the old Scooby-Doo cartoons at the end where they'd have the bad guy all tied up and they'll say, let's see who the ghost really is. And they'd rip the mask off. And, there, and, you know, it'd be some, some loser there that was running a haunted car, carnival or something. And, and, uh, and he says, yeah, and it would have worked, too, if it hadn't been for you, med- you meddling kids or whatever. It's kind of what I saw. There's going to come a day where Jesus is going to come, and all of our speculation of who we thought he was and all this stuff through history is going to be meaningless because Jesus is going to rip the mask off. And we're going to see who he is, and we're going to know what he's all about. We're going to recognize at the hand of Jesus that he's the son of destruction. And we're going to worship Jesus because Jesus is the God of life who has exposed the son of destruction. It says, then the lawlessness of the lawless one will be revealed, whom whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus shows up, this guy doesn't stand a chance. Jesus is going to deal with this person and all the heresy and all the types that he has presented throughout history swiftly and conclusively, killing him, the Bible says, by the breath of his mouth. Breath, let me remind you, is pneuma, the same word as spirit in the Greek. The Spirit of God is going to proceed from the mouth of Jesus and utterly destroy this fool. Utterly. This is also a reference. Breath of his mouth is also a reference to his word. Think about what Jesus has done. He's created galaxies by his word. Surely he can destroy this pretender to his throne in the same way. Jesus, the Bible says, will bring him to nothing Think about the implications of that. No, no remainder of his rebellion, no loyalists, no insurgency is going to survive this, this. It's going to be utter and complete devastation for him. It's over. And we have to remember that the Antichrist, as presented in Scripture, isn't just some mad scientist, some Bond villain who is plotting to rule the world. This is what the scripture describes him as. It says that we read this morning, it says, The coming of the lawless lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Listen, there is nothing to fear from the Antichrist for a believer because he is nothing but a puppet on the hand of a puppet master. That's all he is. There are two defining elements of this reality that Paul talks about. First, he says false signs and wonders are attributed to him. False does not mean that they're not that they won't be real, that they won't they won't have they, that they're just fake or 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 you know fabricated. It, it doesn't mean that. What it means is they won't be valid because they're exercised outside of God's authority. And Jesus said really important word for us, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And so when this fool comes on the scene and starts performing signs, guess what he's going to attract? A wicked and adulterous generation. We've discovered that the Antichrist is a reality in all times, past, present, future. So there are still many in our world today who are sign seekers and they're deceived by present-day antichrists unaware because all they want to do is see a sign. And listen, don't misunderstand me. Uh, please don't. There's nothing wrong with the miraculous display of God's power when he moves among us. And we pray he moves among us like that a lot. But when we're unsatisfied with what God has said in his word, or what God has done in history that we receive by faith, and we want him to prove himself over and over again with something more, we 
are embracing the spirit of Antichrist. Paul tells us that the signs and the wonders of the man of lawlessness will be done with all wicked deception. The Antichrist working in the world, as well as every, every type of Antichrist, until the final manifestation, is to deceive people away from God's truth. His destruction, along with Satan's, will be the end of a war that began all the way back in Eden. But those who are deceived, usually when we think about someone who's deceived, we almost uh, attach some sort of innocent to the one who was deceived and put all the guilt on the deceiver. But that's not what the Bible says here. It says those who are deceived will be culpable because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Though they had the gospel, they had the witnesses of creation and conscience that Romans 1 talks about, they still suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But they will not go to their condemnation only because of that. It will also be with the working of God as well. For Paul says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. That's a troubling scripture for many of us. It's almost like it's saying that, that God is, is responsible. And I'm telling you that there's more to it than that. I'm not, I'm not defending God here because God is somewhat responsible. He makes the choice as a righteous judge to judge them. But, but this is what that means when it says God sends them a strong delusion so that they might believe what is false. Choosing These people choosing to ignore what is true in judgment God makes it so they can do nothing else. Or in other words, first, they would not repent. And so God makes it that they could not repent. And that sounds heavy, and it is. But if you are dabbling in sin and you are knowingly defying the word, I would take great caution from what I just said. Great caution from what I just said. Because first they could not, they would not repent, and then they could not repent. Their hearts became so hardened that they had no interest in God. John Stott, who's a genius, gone to the Lord now, but he said, Beyond the great deception, there lay the great refusal. Isn't that good? They were deceived because they refused. They refused to love the truth and be saved. Now, for what purpose would God do such a thing? Why on earth would a holy, loving God do such a thing? Paul says, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in in unrighteousness. As I said last week, God will balance the books. No one is getting away with anything. All sin will be judged. Our only hope, your only hope, my only hope is right now, while we have this moment, is to run to Jesus. Jesus took our well-deserved punishment on the cross. Our sin was judged, but it was judged in Jesus, so it doesn't have to be judged in us. Run to Jesus Because I'm telling you, soon it will be too late. Even now, even this very moment, as you listen to my words, time is ticking off the clock. As John said, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, now is in the world already. You don't have to look far to find his activity. Today is the day to be saved. Today. Let me sum up. Now, I've given you a lot this morning. Let me sum up. I was taught as a child that Antichrist was primarily a political figure that would appear at the end sometime in the future as a dictator. But this doesn't seem to be the Bible, the thrust of the Bible's teaching. Both John and, John and Paul both speak of what is happening now, not relegating his identity or his presence to the future. The spirit of the Antichrist now is in the world. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There are also allusions to Antichrists who have come modeled after brutal, persecuting um, emperors like 
Antiochus Epiphanes and, and Nero. But John ties the activity of the Antichrist to heresy. And there are many references to his rising out of the church with the approval of people who claim to be Christians. Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be an ultimate final Antichrist who would appear at the end. But what it does mean is that we have no need to identify him. None whatsoever. No, no, you may have a great guess, but I guarantee you your guess is wrong. I don't care who your guess is, your guess is wrong. I promise you that. All through history, I could give you the list of people that have been proclaimed. I remember when I was a kid, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Can you figure out why? Six names in his first name, six names in his middle name, six letters in his middle name, six, six letters in his last name. It had to be him, right? All of your guesses are wrong. Every generation of believers tried to guess it, failed to do so. But what we do know is that God is going to reveal him in time. And what we have to do as believers who God has sovereignly put in 2019 is to fight against the present spirit of the Antichrist with guns and bombs and and things like that. Of course not. No. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, my, my followers, my disciples would fight. You know how we fight the the spirit of the Antichrist? We do it by holy living and by gospel proclamation. Those are our twin weapons to absolutely destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist. The main thing we need to know, to cling to, to love, to embrace, is that Jesus Christ will destroy all evil with the breath of his mouth at the end, bringing it to nothing. The Antichrist... Whoever he is, whatever he is, will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and the false prophet to be forever judged. Jesus wins. And y'all were a little quick on that because I was also going to say that those... (laughs) Randy, I'm going to give you a three count, okay? Those in Jesus win. If I could have our communion workers come up. Um, So uh, about two years ago, we committed to ending every service or or at some point in our service having uh, you gather at the Lord's Supper because we just thought it was that important. We just wanted to to, um, uh, uh, emphasize the beauty of this, this ordinance of the church. And so what we try to do is we try to preach into this every Sunday. We try to, to, to kind of make the, the, the sharpest point on whatever we're saying to be uh, uh, illustrated in communion. How in the world do you do that on a message about the Antichrist? And I'm going to tell you how you do it. There is nothing that represents the power of Jesus Christ to overcome and the victory that he has achieved than the broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior. Nothing represents his victory. And he said that by taking this, we proclaim his, his death until he comes. So when you come up here Sunday after Sunday and you, you take a little piece of bread with a little bit of juice and, and, and you, you do this, you know what you're saying? You know what you're proclaiming loudly? You're saying, oh, yeah, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. I don't care how bad it looks right now. Jesus wins. Jesus has won. Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan. He has absolutely obliterated hell. He has devastated sin. He has put death to death. Jesus wins. And this, this was the payment of that. This, this was the payment of his victory. And you are the spoils of war. You are what he has won because he is victorious. So you don't come up here to remember a dead Savior with a body and blood. You come up here to remember that that death couldn't hold him and that through his death he redeemed mankind and now is risen and reigning and will someday destroy all of his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Jesus wins. And I cannot think of a better reason to gather at the table of the Lord and celebrate what he has done. Anybody with me on that? Praise Lord. Would you stand with me? I want to read our words of institution for you, and then we will proceed. Um, 
with the uh, with the offering you the body and the blood of Lord Jesus. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You want to proclaim the Lord's death today with the promise of his coming? Let's pray and give thanks like Jesus did on that night so long ago. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that that you have vindicated his death, vindicated his sacrifice by raising him from the dead, and that you have called him up to heaven to be seated beside you on on his throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible tells us that his blood is constantly making intercession for us. In our weakness, in our frailty, in our propensity for deception, and our lust for wisdom, our lust for power, you just make intercession for us all the time. And God, you give us the grace to, and grant us beautiful repentance so that we can constantly, daily, moment by moment, turn back to you and thank you. Thank you, Lord, that there is no power in heaven or earth or under the earth that we are to fear but God alone. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are mighty, that you're mighty over all the power of the dragon. You're mighty over all the power of the beast. You're power over all the, the, the you're mighty over all the power of the false prophet. You are God. You are exalted. There is none like you. There is no one beside you. You are victorious. And Lord, we rejoice today as your people. We rejoice because you have graciously called us into your victory. Because you won, we win. So Lord, we come now to remember your sacrifice and to glorify you and and in great joy to, to partake of your victory. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come and receive.